So this is a lobster diver in Maine. And lobster diving is not a safe profession. I'm sure Michael Packard, age 56, already had a lot of harrowing stories to tell to his children and his grandchildren. But he made the news this last week when a humpback whale swallowed him uh, as he was going about his lobster diving rounds. Uh, it showed up in the Cape Cod Times and then it made, you know, ripples across uh, YouTube and, and headlines. Michael Packard, 56, swallowed by a humpback whale, which immediately spit him back out because humpback whales don't eat things that big. It was an accident on both their parts. Well, today we're going to talk about Jonah, who had a similar experience that lasted considerably longer than Michael Packard's. Welcome to Wilshire. We are glad that you're here. It's good to be together to worship God. Today's a big day, as has already been mentioned. Uh, today is the day that our uh, young people go off to Quartz Mountain Camp. A lovely camp, balmy 74 degrees all day long at Quartz Mountain. It's wonderful. I've been there. Um, cool, tropical. It's not? It's not that way? Oh, yeah. Those, those Quartz Mountains that are on two sides of it, they just they reflect the coolness into the camp. They, it's great. Anyway, if, if you do not know about Quartz Mountain Camp, I will just tell you uh, that God's work gets done at this camp every year. Uh, Jeremy's been there. He went up there yesterday, I think, with Tony and Andrew, and they've been prepping for it. And students' lives are touched every year at this place, and people's spirits are built up every year at this place. And good things happen every year. For, for Wilshire students and other churches who join Wilshire's program there. It is a wonderful thing that takes place at, at that camp. So um, keep, spare a moment to pray for them and keep them in your mind uh, this week as they are down there enjoying that lovely weather, uh, but also soaking in the, the training and the fellowship. All right, back to Jonah. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. It's short, four chapters. Uh, Taylor read one quarter of it right there. We could have read the whole thing and still had time to spare this morning. And it wouldn't be bad for you to go ahead and do that at some point. But I'm using Jonah today to talk about this issue of people who are hard to love. Got this series on people who are hard to love. And let's face it, if you think about who Jonah is, from the start of the book to the end of the book, he's definitely in the hard to love categories. Hard for us to love him, hard for God to love him too. God does love him, hopefully we can too, but he's hard to love. He starts out with the very thing that we just read in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, he's a prophet, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. Now that right there is a mouthful. The city of Nineveh is the capital of the massive Assyrian Empire. 
the Assyrian Empire did one of these ballooning conquest stories that we have. It actually started from a very small kingdom and it just blew out in terms of conquest in a very short order. And by the time this book is being, this story is being told, Assyria had just brutally uh, suppressed kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Eventually, uh, Assyria will come and completely wipe out the northern kingdom of the Jews and destroy them. They are a terrible group of people. Uh, and they were famous for committing war crimes in public to make sure that people were terrified of resisting them. So, it is a wicked city. It is a terrible city. These folks aren't picking daisies. Uh, they are bad folks. And God says, that's where I have chosen for your mission field, Jonah. Go over there. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it, for its wickedness has come up against me. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. Paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, Tarshish, we're not sure where it is, but we think it's a port in uh, what today would be Spain, southern Spain. So uh, Nineveh is to the northeast of where Jonah is. He gets on a boat going west as fast as he can go. He is going in the opposite direction of where God told him to go. And Taylor read for us the story this morning. You saw how well that worked out for, for Jonah. Okay. Jonah helps us understand and helps us love people who are running away from God. Do you know anybody who is in that category? Do you know anybody who is running away from the Lord God? Jonah decided, I'm going to buy a ticket and get away from God. God lives in that box there in Jerusalem. And if I get on a ship and I sail fast enough and far enough, I'll be away from God. And you know people who, maybe even though they know in one part of their brain that that's crazy, in another part of their brain they think, if I can just do fill in the blank, I will be able to get away from God or at least not think about God. If I do enough drugs or alcohol, if I have enough experiences, if I get enough money, if I go on enough vacation, if I have enough people that are obeying me or looking to me and rewarding me, all the stuff we just talked about in the communion talk. If you know some people who are filling their lives with endless cycles of activity and the real point of that activity is to run as fast as they can away from what God is asking of them. And it's hard to love people like that. When you're doing that, it's hard for you to love yourself. It's hard for God to love you. And Jonah is our person who is in the midst of doing that, who says to God, 
get off my back. My life, God, would be so much better if I could just figure out a way to get away from you, Lord. You know anybody that says that? Maybe not with their lips, but with their actions. That's hard to love. And that's Jonah. Now what happens to Jonah is that he can't get away from God. God is as much out there in the middle of the sea bound for Tarshish as God is back in the land of Israel near the temple. God is as much in those waves as he is in those hills of Judah and in that seaport of Joppa. God's even in the fish that comes along and swallows Jonah whole, but doesn't kill him, keeps him alive. And the people that you know who are running away from God, God has not left them alone, even as they run to try and be alone from him. In fact, chapter 2 is all about that, of the book of Jonah. If you have your Bibles, you can see what happens. Jonah finds himself still alive, not dead. He thought that he was dying when they threw him into the sea. Then this giant fish comes along. I don't know if it was a great white shark. It's, it's a fish that God prepared, so it might not be anything we would recognize. It comes along and swallows him whole. Sure, he thought he was dying at that point, but he's still alive as well. He's in the middle of this stinky, smelly fish. And chapter 2 is, I don't doubt, a reconstruction of what he said for three days in the belly of that fish. You can imagine the kinds of prayers he said, the thoughts he had in that dank, stinky darkness of the belly of the fish. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said... In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deeps, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled all around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Do you notice something about Jonah? Where does he think God is now? He was hoping, if I just get on a boat and get out far enough into the ocean, maybe God will leave me alone. Where does he know God is now? Oh, God was in the deeps. God was in the swirls. God was in the breakers. God was in the waves. And he hopes, he hopes, he hopes God is with me here in the middle of the belly of this fish. I have been banished from your side, I said. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapping around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath was barred me forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. I don't want to be away from you right now. 
I want you to be near me, God. I don't want to run from you anymore. When my life was ebbing away, verse 7, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, for you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God, love, uh, God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes to the Lord. We can imagine for three days and three nights, Jonah is saying things like that over and over again. Begging, pleading, hoping. This is a reconstruction, we're sure, after the fact of what he said. I want you here with me right now. I don't want to be away from you. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. And you know some people that are kind of like this as well. When they're standing on their own two feet, at least they think they are, they run away from God. Jonah also helps us love people. Jonah helps us love people who run from God. Jonah also helps us love people who seek God most when they are in the most trouble. Sometimes it takes being in trouble to make me realize just how much I want God in my life. Just how much I miss my relationship with God. It's sad if that's what it takes. But sometimes that is what it takes. Sometimes when I'm content and when things are going well and I actually have money left a little bit at the end of the month and my health is okay, I'll get around to God later. I'll think about God manana. And sadly, sometimes, it's when all of that starts to break down that I want God the most. Well, it's hard to love that. Hard for us to love that when we see someone else doing it. It's hard to love it when we see ourselves doing that as well. Hard to love it when we see that that our hearts are that fickle. Say what you will about the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Let's be honest, he kind of had a point. I mean, Jesus said a lot about him, and, and that's an important point too. And it was the point that the Pharisees needed to hear. But say what you will about the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son did not have a massive moral readjustment. And the older brother knew that. Why did the prodigal son finally come home back to his father? You can answer me, it's okay. Really... Based on the story, why did the product, what really finally got to the prodigal son to get him to come home? Well, he said, I sinned against you, I sinned against God, I'm so sorry. But what really got him? He was starving. <laughs> and he said, if I go back and I make a big show of being sad, God, uh, my father will probably give me at least something to eat. Right? And the elder brother knew that. 
in the story, the father knows that too. And that's kind of the point. The prodigal son's a good illustration of someone who really gets serious about their relationship to God only when they're really suffering and really things are going bad. And the elder brother's relationship is often our reaction. That's why the prodigal son's hard to love. The real explosion in the prodigal son's story and the explosion here in the Jonah story is going to turn out to be is that God doesn't act like the older brother. God ends up doing this weird thing that the father does in the prodigal son story. He says, I know why you came back. I know your heart has a long way to go. I don't care as long as you're back with me. You get that? God does not care what brings a person back to him as long as they come back to him. God doesn't care what brings you back to him as long as you come back. God doesn't care what, bring, what, what brings your in-laws back to him as long as they come back, your children back to him as long as they come. God does not, he is not picky like we are. He is not persnickety like we are. We are all messed up in his sight. None of us are very righteous in his sight. He just wants us back with him. And it turns out he is merciful to Jonah, though Jonah doesn't deserve it. Jonah's hard to love. God loves him anyway. And when we see that, we can maybe start to have some love too even for those Jonas in our life who only get serious about their spiritual life when things are going bad. And you know what? God wants you back and so do we. God wants you back and so do we. So the great fish spits Jonah out and he, stinking and bedraggled, makes his way to Nineveh now to do God's will. Chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, went to Nineveh. Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. The fast, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decrees of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. 
and he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, an abounding abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You notice that these are not compliments in Jonah's mouth right now. I hate this about you, God. You're merciful, you're kind, you're you're abounding in love. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Kill me. That's how much I'm mad at you. Jonah's Jonah is a prophet, but he's not a paragon of emotional maturity, okay? We're getting that, right? What's going on with him? Well, he put his his relationship, (coughs) put his um, reputation on the line. He marched through this magnificent city of Nineveh saying, I'm a prophet of God, and here's what's going to happen to you. Forty days, and you're toast. God's going to punish you for all the evil that you've done. The kingdoms that you've conquered and the money that you've stolen and the people, innocent people that you've slaughtered, God's going to punish you for that. It's going to happen in 40 days. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen. Eventually... Jonah goes out and sits on a hillside waiting. Come on. Come on, God. Do it. Doesn't happen. I just wish you'd kill me. Just let me die. Jonah is hard to love. And he helps us to understand people who who are hard to love because... They don't want God to show the same mercy to others that God has shown to them. Jonah, in chapter 2, was just begging God for undeserved mercy. I don't deserve it. I haven't done anything to merit it. Uh, You should have killed me twice over. But please... Give me mercy. Be that God of abounding and long-standing and patient love and help me out. I need that from you, God. But now I'm looking at somebody I don't like, somebody that has hurt me, somebody that has damaged me. They don't deserve mercy. And I don't want you to show it to them. I want you to get them. And the fact that you're not doing it makes me furious, God. You know anybody like that? Unfortunately, this particular story was necessary in the Old Testament because the people in the Old Testament often took the law of Moses as an excuse to hate everybody that wasn't part of the covenant of Moses. 
In other words, God has been merciful to Israel, brought us out of slavery, gave us this covenant, <coughs> he's showered us with these blessings we didn't deserve, and the upshot is, now we get to hate everybody he hasn't done that for. So the book of Jonah is in our Old Testament because the people in the Old Testament times needed to hear it. Newsflash, we need to hear it too. Because unfortunately, that part of the human heart still very much alive. If we just took the Lord's Supper where we thanked God for the fact that when we didn't deserve it, Jesus Christ came and paid this incredible sacrifice so that in spite of how bad we are, we can be made clean and given grace and brought to God. And do you realize that so often that blessing of, of being made clean and brought into relationship with God is used by Christians as an excuse to hate everybody who's not a Christian. Oh boy, they're going to get it. And I'm going to watch. I'm going to sit on my hillside under my vine and watch. Yeah, you may laugh now. Yuck it up. Just wait till what happens. You think I'm making this up. But I have seen the most hate-filled things written by Christians to non-believers. I have begged God for mercy. I needed the mercy of God. I do not want God's mercy extended to you. I hope you do go to hell. I hope you do suffer torment. I hope you are doomed forever. Something has really not connected when, when religious people get into that condition. I need the mercy of God I want to withhold it as much as possible from everybody else. Jesus said it this way to us. Lord, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. You decide what kind of a God that you want in your life by the way that you extend mercy to other people. If your view of religion is all about, oh, I can't wait till judgment gets you. I can't wait till judgment comes crashing down on your head. You've made me feel small and foolish. You've made fun of my faith. And I can't wait till God comes for you. If that's what you do, then you're inviting God to do that to you. And Jesus says, offer the kind of forgiveness you want God to extend to you. So do we need the book of Jonah in the New Testament times? I think we do.
Jonah helps us love those people who don't want God to show the same mercy to others that God has shown to us. It's interesting, God does a little visual illustration for Jonah. Jonah, you know, sits up on that hillside glaring at the city of Nineveh, kind of trying to psychically willing it to explode into flame, you know. And, and, and God, in his mercy, provides a little vine for shade. Something grows up very quickly and provides him a little shade on that desert hillside. And then a worm comes and eats the vine. And then a hot east wind comes and blows on Jonah's bald head. I don't know why I always imagine him as having a bald head. It makes this part more dramatic. And Jonah's just like, why are you doing this? Why, why would you do He just makes Jonah even matter. And God says, so you liked my vine, and you're wondering, and, and you're sad that the vine died. Do you know how many people are in the city you're glaring at? And animals are in there, and kids are in there. Should I show at least some mercy there? What are we going to do, Christians, for our Jonas? People who are trying to run away from God. People who only get serious about God when they're in trouble. People who love to have the mercy of God shown to them and then immediately show hate out to those who don't have it yet. What are we going to do for our Jonas? Well, there are two things that are true about the Jonas that are in your life and in my life. Number one, anybody who is running away from God is in pain. It hurts to run away from God. Have some compassion for someone who is running away from God. They may tell you, oh, I love being away from, I love not being, a, I love finally having put my Christianity behind me. I'm happy the way I am. They are not happy. They're not going to be happy. They are in pain. Have some compassion for them. And second, anyone who runs away from God is really interested in God. They want to know, now they, are, they have antipathy right now, but they want to know about God. And you can use that to your advantage sometimes. So a couple of things I think we can do. Number one, for the Jonas in your life, don't help them run. Don't, if you see them getting on the boat to Tarshish, don't help them get on there. Don't pack their bag for them. If they're using drugs and alcohol, don't cover for them. Don't lie to their boss for them. Don't, don't assist them in running away from God. He said, well, you know, but I've got to build a relationship first, and then maybe I'll be able to tell them about the God. No. You start a relationship built on lies. It's going to always stay that way. We never see Jesus starting with lies and then saying, well, eventually I'll get around to telling you the truth. That's just not the way he operated. Help them make it as easy as possible and give as much encouragement as possible to help them 
turn their life in the right direction. You do not have power in this situation. All you are doing is making a moral appeal, but you can make a moral appeal, and that's what you do. Be as welcoming to them if they turn as Jesus has been to you. Have your relationship be based on both truth and love. You're the person in their life who doesn't just pat them on the back no matter what they do and say, yay, I'll give you two likes on Facebook for that horrible thing you're doing to yourself. You tell them the truth, but you love them even when you disagree with them. And you are constantly offering the opportunity to turn and walk in a different direction. You're that person. You may get that thrown in your teeth once, twice, 10 times, 50 times, doesn't matter. It's there. They heard it come from your mouth. And when the day comes that they're in the belly of the beast, and they need God. You're going to be their prophet. You're going to be the person that, that they remember. And they may come to you and say, help me, I'm ready. I, I, I need to make a change. You be that person. You be that one that God uses. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your blessings to us. We've all got people in our lives that are hard to love, and, and we know we're hard to love a lot. We know we are from your perspective. We know we are from each other's perspective. God, give each one of us the grace to love more and more broadly. And God, help us to, to tell the truth, to be honest, and to constantly be working as you work to bring people out of the darkness and back into the light. God, help us to do that with a loving and kind and generous spirit. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's gracious invitation, he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to be saved. If you want that for yourself, why don't you come, ask for what you need, or ask for baptism as we stand and as we sing.